Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks. And this morning, if you have a Bible, please open it with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. This morning, we are starting a new series on one of the most widely loved, one of the most popular, and one of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture. This morning, we are going to be traveling through the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to, before we go on this journey, we need to prepare. Before we climb this mountain, we need to spend some time at base camp. See, you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. You may remember phrases from it like, turn the other cheek, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We're all very, judge not lest you be judged, as Charles Barkley famously quoted. We're all very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And it's actually, we know from antiquity, from the 300s, that this was the most copied portion of Scripture. So people were writing it down and handing it out. These three chapters in Matthew have been widely circulated and widely loved, and as we'll talk about this morning, also widely confusing. Uh, And a lot of people have been surprising fans of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut the famous author who's a famous atheist and secular humanist, he once said this about the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to Kurt Vonnegut. If it weren't for the message of mercy and pity in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wouldn't want to be a human being. I would just as soon be a rattlesnake. Well, there is wisdom from Kurt Vonnegut, and we are going to discover in the Sermon on the Mount What does it really mean to be human? We're going to look at that together, but we need to prepare before we do. So we're going to read our passage where Matthew, like a good pastor, is trying to help our hearts. He's trying to focus us before, he says, before you can hear the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, you need to spend time with the teacher, So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. So I'm going to be reading Matthew 4, starting in verse 23. And uh, it's the habit of the early church that when uh, the preacher would read Scripture, they would finish by saying, this is the word of the Lord. And the congregation would reply, thanks be to God. So we're going to do that. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you all can reply, thanks be to God. Let's pray. And then I'm going to pray. So let's read God's word right now. Here we go. This is Matthew 4, starting in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people were bringing to him uh, those with various diseases those who suffered severe pain, the demon-possessed, those experiencing seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and sat down. 
his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, please prepare our hearts as we listen to your Son and we unpack the greatest sermon ever given. Father, I pray that your Spirit would move in this place and our hearts would see this teacher, this teacher who loves us, this teacher who also is Lord, and I pray that it would change our posture, that by seeing Jesus as he is, we would all take the new posture of just sitting at his feet. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Mold juice was the first name of penicillin. Mold juice. And I understand this is a room full of scientists and doctors, and I slept through biology, so it's very scary giving a science illustration to you folks. But in my best understanding, penicillin was a happy accident. Alexander Fleming was a Scottish doctor who was well-respected in his field, but he was a famous slob. So he uh, went away on vacation and came back after two weeks, and his lab was a mess. And he found a petri dish that had bacteria he had been studying. He found it covered in mold. He was about to throw it away and discard it when he decided to look at it. And when he looked at it, he found that the bacteria had stopped growing when it came in contact with the mold. He was totally unprepared to make a discovery that would forever change medicine. Penicillin would go on to save anywhere that's estimated between 200 million and 800 million lives. Uh, See, prior to this day, this was uh, back in the 20s, uh, if you got a cut, that was bad news bears. That could be really dangerous because cuts get infected, and if it gets infected, either we're going to burn you or you're just going to die. Sorry. And so now, Alexander Fleming makes a discovery that changes everything. And, And this is what he says about it. One sometimes finds what one is not looking for. When I woke up just after dawn on September 28, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacteria killer. But in in a very humble manner, this is what he says, I suppose that's just what I did. You know when penicillin started being mass-produced, though? 1938. He discovered it in 1928, and it wasn't until a decade later that it hit the public. Why was that? Not only was Fleming unprepared for it, so was everybody else. He took it to his colleagues. They told him that would never work. You can never put this in a medicine form. What are you talking about? It wasn't until a decade later when Ernst Chain at Oxford was looking through journals and read it and thought, this is genius. This is on to something. Went to the United States, and the United States started mass-producing penicillin, and people believe it actually changed the outcome of World War II. It actually... uh, factored into our decision on D-Day of how we were going to invade Normandy. We wanted to do it in a way that could keep the penicillin safe. Think about what an advantage that would be having penicillin back then. Just like penicillin broke into a world that wasn't prepared, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount broke into a sleepy and unprepared world. Yes, there were some people prophets and preachers who went before Jesus that were trying to prepare the way for this king who was coming, but largely we were unprepared. 
And so Matthew, what he's trying to do, what he's working to help us get toward, is he's trying to prepare our hearts before we hear this sermon. Like I said, he wants you to see the teacher before you look at his teachings. He wants you to see this teacher loves you. This sermon comes from a place of purpose and intention from a teacher who deeply loves you. He's seeking after you. You are not a bother. And he's also going to say he loves you so much, he's willing to challenge you. This is a teacher who loves us and a teacher who challenges us. The Sermon on the Mount is wild. Nobody in here is living up to the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to talk about that in a second, how the Sermon on the Mount deeply will challenge all of us. Nobody in here can encounter the Sermon on the Mount and leave the same. It changes you. So this is coming from a teacher who loves us and a teacher who challenges us. And by seeing that, by looking at this teacher, Jesus, Matthew invites us into a whole new posture. He invites us to change the way we're living, to sit at this teacher's feet. The invitation of the Sermon on the Mount really is an invitation to come and abide with Jesus. So let's take a look at that teacher. Let's see how that teacher loves us. Here's what, he say, here's what Matthew wants you to get. Before we talk about take the log out of your own eye, before we tell you to turn the other cheek, you need to know this teacher loves you. Look with me again at verse 23. Here's what it says. Jesus went throughout Galilee. Why? Why was Jesus going out throughout Galilee? Here's the answer. In order so that he was going throughout Galilee for the purpose of teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Charles Quarles, uh, his translation of the New Testament, I think nails it when he says, Jesus went throughout Galilee so that he could teach. That matches the grammar perfectly. Here's what he's saying. It is so easy for us to imagine Jesus kind of aimlessly wandering around. Like he just, oh, you know, what am I going to do today? I don't know. Like some people came to me. So I just kind of on the fly taught a little lesson and, oh, they brought their sick friend and, oh, well, I guess I can heal you. So there you go. Matthew wants to push back on that image you have of Jesus. Matthew wants to say this, that Jesus doesn't exist. The Jesus of the New Testament is looking for people to rescue. He went around doing these things. There's purpose and intent. He had a plan. Earlier in this book, in Matthew, in Matthew 1, Matthew says this, Hey, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And now he's showing us just exactly what God with us looks like. You are not a bother to Jesus. He came here for the purpose of teaching and healing. He came for the purpose of transformation. It can be so easy to think, well, you know, I'm just kind of in the middle here. There's people worse than me. There's people better than me. And so, Jesus, like, I don't want to be a bother to you. If you have time, I'll be here. And Matthew's saying, no. This is his job. This teacher 
loves you. This teacher is looking for you. This teacher is on a rescue mission. There is purpose here. And Matthew also wants to lay a backdrop. What kind of world did this teacher come into? What's it like? Did he come into a nice, easy, cushy world where it was easy to love people? It was easy to try to rescue them because they were so easy to love and care for? No. Look at the backdrop that this Savior starts his ministry in. Here we go. There were people who were, had all kinds of various diseases. Verse 24, suffering, severe pain, demon-possessed, those experiencing seizures, the paralyzed. This is a broken world. Matthew wants you to say, baby, baby, it's a wild world. That's the world this Savior came to. He ran into a burning building. This world is broken. You feel it. I feel it. Politicians, psychologists, you're always going to have jobs because this world is broken and it is broken beyond repair. And Jesus enters this world. This is where he comes into our fears, into our mess. And he came, why? To rescue to transform. He is purposeful. He's intentional. And you need to tell yourself, you are not a bother to this Savior. He likes rescuing. He likes transforming. If you think you are a bother to this Savior, you are not going to really bring him your problems. And that's what he came to transform, brokenness. He transforms the brokenness. He reverses the curse of sin. He is fixing this broken world. Listen to the helplessness of this broken world too. Listen with me in verse 24. News spread about him all over Syria, and people brought to him those who were ill. Think about that for a second. You're sick in first century Palestine. There's a healer who's come. You can't even get to him. Someone had to bring you. This world is broken, and this world is helpless. And that's the place Jesus runs toward. We have a Savior who loves you. Love is the motivation behind this sermon. Before we climb the mountain, as we spend time at base camp with our instructor, you need to know he's going to ask a lot of you. You can't actually do it on your own, but it comes from a place of love. His ministry is transformation. And here, listen, listen to this. We're looking at a, a small section of Matthew, just these three chapters, right? How does the book of Matthew end? The book of Matthew is closing out with this teacher on a cross. This teacher on a cross. His love drove him to give this sermon, and his love drove him to give his life. It's from a place of consistency and wholeness. One of the things about being a public speaker is that anytime you publicly give a message, all your listeners are now starting to look at your life and say, yeah, do you really believe that? It's kind of like being at the Honda dealership. 
you know, you're checking out a Honda, and the salesperson is like spending a half hour telling you why the Honda is the, great, the best car on the road. You need to have a Honda. Your life's not complete until you have this Honda. Uh, oh my gosh, like it never breaks down. This is the best car ever. And they convince you. You're like, yeah, I think I'm going to get a Honda. And then you see them leaving their Cadillac. See, and when it comes to preachers, teachers of God's word, we have the same pressure, and it's a good pressure. I'm not trying to say, hey, don't give me that pressure. We need that. But our job in America has become difficult. And there's one group of people who made this job difficult. I'm just going to say this word, and you're all going to know what I mean. Televangelists. Televangelists have made the job of preaching difficult. Why? Because they preach one message, and their lives are totally different. They ask you to make sacrifices, and then they fly in their private jets to, you know, mahi-mahi. I don't know. They're just like, you know, there's a little bit of a a message breakdown somewhere in— Is mahi-mahi a place? I don't even know. We'll say no. It's a really remote Hawaiian island, okay? I think it's a fish. They ask something of you. It's something they don't give in return, okay? And so think about the 80s was kind of when the bubble burst on TV evangelists. And I'm not trying to say all TV evangelists are bad. I'm sure some of them are lovely people. But in the 80s, the bubble burst. There was one famous televangelist who was caught in an adulterous relationship. And this guy had a huge ministry, and everyone's nervous. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? Like, are we going to lose all these jobs and money, and is this ministry going to go away? So he goes on TV, says he's sorry, apologizes, and it seems to kind of save things. Like, okay, we're all right here. Fast forward a couple years, he's caught outside of a hotel with prostitutes. He was approached by people, and they said, hey, is this true? Like, what are you doing? To which he replied, that is none of your business. We live in a world where we're so used to hypocrisy, where we're so used to someone gives one message, and their life is totally just in another direction. Jesus ain't no hypocrite. The message that he gives came from his heart, and that heart drove him to the cross. The message of the Sermon on the Mount is love. Love compels you to turn the other cheek. Love compels you when your neighbor asks for your cloak to give them your tunic. But it comes from a person who loves you so deeply, and they're all in. They died. Jesus died because the Sermon on the Mount flows from who he really is. Don't sanitize the Sermon on the Mount. That's the temptation. The temptation is to say, ah, this is really hard. How do we navigate it? And that's been the temptation for a while. So there's basically been, throughout history, as we've read this sermon, there's two approaches to it. One is called, like, the two-class system. So some people say, okay, look, the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, asks a lot of people, you know, asks you to give everything, total transformation, but that's because there's two classes of followers of Jesus. There's like the clergy, like the priests and the nuns and the monks, people in ministry, and then there's everybody else. And so this class over here, they have to obey the sermon literally, while this class over here, I mean, it'd be nice, but we're not asking too much of you. That's one approach. The other approach is what's called the impossible ideal And there's some truth to the impossible ideal, but it goes something like this. Yeah, Jesus lifts the bar real high, like keeps you on your tippy toes, and you're always going to try and you're always going to fail. 
And so don't worry, no one can do it. He knew that, but it's just to let you know like, oh, it'd be nice, but there's grace when you fail. There's a lot of truth in that, but it's not the whole picture. Here's what you need to know. If you sanitize the Sermon on the Mount, you cut yourself up from the love that flows out of it. But yes, there's some challenges that you don't have to feel. You don't have to feel that discomfort. But you also cut yourself off from that amazing love. And that challenge is the second thing Matthew wants you to see about this sermon. Yes, the teacher loves you. And the teacher is Lord. The teacher will challenge you. The teacher will push back on your comfort. I'm going to sound like a yoga instructor for a second, but the Sermon on the Mount tells you to get comfortable being uncomfortable. See, when we start talking about change, it's really easy to like be like, man, my neighbor really needs to hear this message. That'd be great for them to change. I like, I like this change message. Hopefully, I'm going to bring my friend and they'll change. And Jesus is saying, we're talking to you. You need to change. Look with me when, he talks, when Jesus talks about this in verse 23. He says this. He went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Literally, it says he preached the gospel of the kingdom. That's from the Greek word euangelion, where we get the word evangelist. So Jesus is going around being an evangelist for the kingdom. It's an invitation to be kingdom people. Kingdom people. To not live to build your own empire. To say, like, hey, I've got my, my own kingdom over here. I'm building it. I like it. It's lovely. It's an invitation to another kingdom with a different king. And here's, here's what you need to know about evangelists. Evangelists were a job that is not unique to Christianity. There were evangelists in the Roman Empire. Nero had evangelists. So what would an evangelist do? Well, when Nero would move into a new city and just attack it, take it over for Rome, put a Roman flag there, he would send an evangelist to the neighboring towns to say, hey, just so you know, I'm an evangelist. I'm from Nero's empire. Uh, Nero just won a war, a battle over there. And so he's coming here next. Rearrange your lives so that when he comes here, it works out well for you. That was the role of the evangelist. And now Jesus is his own evangelist who's come saying, the kingdom of God has broken in to your world. And here's the challenge of this king. Nobody's life naturally lines up with everything in this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, is what it's called earlier, has broken in to the kingdom of earth. And nobody, it's foreign to us. It's foreign to us. Nobody like, yeah, I like everything about this. And here's what Matthew wants you to see. This king is not a buffet. Okay, this, this is not golden corral. Jesus is not, you cannot come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, I really liked what you had to say about sex. I think that kind of lines up with what I think about sex. And what you said about forgiveness, yeah, that's pretty helpful. Yeah, but what you said about money and materialism and practicing religion before other people, I mean, I don't really like that. So I'm in your kingdom because I kind of agree with most of it. I got seven out of ten. That's right, right? So we're good here, right? 
If you're going to be in the kingdom of God, if you're going to be a kingdom person, the invitation is to submit. That it's not your kingdom. Someone else is calling the shots. And this someone else is a king, and you come to him on his terms. So look, the message that Matthew first wants you to see is that he loves you. He loves you deeply, and he loves you enough to challenge you. Growth does not come without being challenged. If you are never challenged, you will never grow. And so this is an invitation to transformation. Jesus is saying right out of the bat, get ready, because we're going to brush up against things you hold dear. And here's what he says later on in the sermon, Matthew 6, 44. He says this, seek first the kingdom of God. Make this kingdom your priority. Look, um, Karl Barth, blessed Karl Barth. He's a giant. One of the popes called him the greatest theologian since Thomas Aquinas. Google him. He has the coolest glasses ever. He's the best dressed theologian you'll ever see. Karl Barth, summarizing what Karl Barth said, he said something to this extent. This is a giant, by the way. He said something to this extent. Look, the Sermon on the Mount, it's so hard. It would be a fool's errand to expect people to actually live this sermon. To which we want to say, like, hey, we love you, Carl, but I I actually think that Jesus is saying, here's what life in the kingdom is like. A new king is here, and he's offering something that feels impossible for us to do. But here's where really great news comes in. Yes, this is very difficult, but this king is not just offering you a kingdom He's offering you himself. The gift of this teacher is that he loves you, he challenges you, and he offers you his very self. So, where do I get that from this passage? Okay, if you were a first century reader reading Matthew, and you got to this point where you read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Now Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up to the mountain— you would experience a deep sense of deja vu. You'd be like, what is going on here? Here's what happened. There's a hero in Israel who fits this description. Let me just describe them to you. And this fits the the bill for two people in the Bible. Ready? This person was born, and around their birth, there was a king who was not too excited about their birth, so they decided to kill all the little baby boys so that they would kill this young person being born. After that, that person left the place they were born. They leave their hometown because of danger, and then an angel appears to, to someone in their family and tells them to go back to where they came from. After which, that person goes, rescues his people, and goes up onto a mountain. Sound familiar? It's how Matthew describes Jesus. It's also how the Hebrew Bible describes Moses. Here's the point Matthew's trying to make. Moses came and rescued God's people from a terrible situation. Jesus is here, and he's the one Moses was pointing to. Moses was preparing the way for that king to come, and now that king himself is here. 
He himself entered this story. Yes, he asks a lot, but he gives even more. He loves you. You're not a bother. He wants to rescue you from your brokenness. And he himself gives you himself so that you can experience transformation. You are not alone as you set off on the Sermon on the Mount. And when we understand that, when we understand just exactly what he's doing, how Moses took a people out of slavery and made a new people, a nation, now Jesus is rescuing us from slavery, from brokenness, and making a new people, a new creation. And this is what life looks like in new creation. This is how we live. It's not just like Jesus said, hey, I came and I was stronger than Rome, and so I'm strong. I'm the new boss of this playground. He said, no, I come and I love. This kingdom is driven by love, and that love wins you back from those kingdoms. We don't get rescued from the world. We get saved within this broken world. And when we see that, when we see this teacher who loves us and who also demands things from us, it invites you into a whole new posture, a whole new way of being. Matthew is inviting you to sit at Jesus's feet. He's inviting you to sit at Jesus's feet. He's redefining what it means to follow Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus is to be with him to sit at his feet and come and learn. Look with me at, ver- at chapter 5, verse 1. He says this, Jesus saw the crowds, so he went up to the mountain and sat down. His disciples came to them, and he began to teach them. In those days, people would gather around a rabbi, and you knew who the rabbi was because they were sitting. It was a place of honor. Jesus, seeing people in need, says, I've got good news for you. He sits. And the invitation for us is to sit at his feet. My friend's grandfather told me a story about Einstein, and I'm not sure if it's apocryphal. So if you find it's not true, I warned you. Um, This is coming from a guy who thinks mahi-mahi is a place. So Albert Einstein for a while was uh, at Princeton, and my friend's grandfather was studying at Princeton, uh, and they, tell, they told a story that uh, a graduate student came up to Einstein and didn't know who he was and said, hey, what are, you, what are you studying? And Einstein said, oh, I'm a student of physics, to which the graduate student replied, oh, yeah, yeah, I took that last year. Here's what the Sermon on the Mount is inviting you to be, a student of Jesus. And it's not just intellectual It's not just a classroom where you take notes and you add it to your already busy life. It's an invitation for a whole new way of being. To coming to this one saying, I'm in need. Just like you entered a needy world, I am this needy one. Help. See, when we have this posture, when we sit at Jesus' feet and we're saying, I'm here to learn, it realigns our priorities. Jesus isn't saying, just add me to your already busy schedule. Just this is one more thing to do. He's saying, no, this kingdom has invaded your space. Now you need to rearrange your life around me.
This is where life is. The sermon asks you what's really vital. Think about that word, vital. What's, where is life? Jesus helps redefine what it means to be human, what it means to be alive. And so now what it means to follow him is to sit at his feet. And this is an invitation for all of us to sit at his feet and wrestle with this person and his message. As N.T. Wright says, there are no passengers on this car ride. You can't be banking off the faith of your friends. You can't say, oh, I really like this pastor. They've kind of sorted it all out. I don't have to worry about it. I'm just here for the ride. You need to wrestle with Jesus. You need to, to, to wrestle with him, to ask him like, hey, you're, you seem to be claiming this on my life. Is that what you want? See, when Jesus, this isn't the first time he opened his mouth publicly. Earlier in chapter 4, it says this, chapter 417. This is his first words publicly, according to Matthew. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The invitation to sit at Jesus' feet is an invitation for a new posture of abiding. It's also a posture of repentance. I need to unpack that word for a little bit. That is a word with baggage. A lot of us, when we think about repentance, you must repent, kind of has this idea of just having a gloomy religious experience. Like, oh, I feel really awful about myself. I'm living in repentance. You know, I just feel terrible all the time. Woe is me. Life is terrible. That's not actually what the audience in the first century would have heard. Um, Josephus, who was a historian living around the time of Paul, tells a story about how he approached a Roman warlord. This Roman warlord was committing atrocities and violence throughout the empire, and Josephus looked at him in his face and told him, repent and believe me. Now, he was not talking to this warlord and saying, feel bad, feel sorry. Yes, repentance may include that. But here's what he's saying. You're headed in a wrong direction. You're headed over here, come over here. Like, this violence isn't going to work, turn over here. There's a new way of doing things. When we sit at Jesus's feet, we are constantly submitting our lives to that. It's a constant, it's a rhythm of our lives of repentance. And repentance can be painful. It can be hard because we have a death grip on our own kingdoms. We're building our own empires. And now someone is coming and saying, there's a different way of being in the world. Stop building your own empire and come into this new kingdom. That's difficult and that's challenging. And the sermon is going to do it again and again to us. But we need to remember, you are loved. You're not a bother to this Savior. He entered the burning building to rescue you, to transform you. Do you think he's going to give up on you because it's hard? No. He has a lot invested in this relationship. He gave you himself. He himself came. No more prophets. I'm here. And that is motivation to keep wrestling. That is motivation to say, I'm uncomfortable. My life was fine. Thank you very much. And now I'm going to go through this process of change. 
I think this can be transformative for our church. This sermon is an invitation for all of us to come together and be united, not around agendas, not around, well, I think this ministry should do this, I think that should do that, this program's great. It's an invitation to come united around a person. That's the gift of the gospel. God gives you himself. That's the invitation of the sermon. And when we do, when we're united around that person, do you know what happens? Healing. So this sermon is an invitation to unity and toward healing together. And yes, we are going to be challenged. But no growth comes without challenge. It's another word for being dead. You're just dead. You're just there. And so here's what I want to do. As we start this journey together, I want to invite you to write a few things down, okay? So I have a couple things I just want you to write down and save somewhere so that in February, when we're done going through the Sermon on the Mount, you can look back at it and you can be like, whoa, I've changed. I didn't think I'd changed, but I've changed. That's pretty cool. So here's what I want you to do. With nothing, no agenda here, okay? I just want you to list out, first thing I want you to do, list out your priorities. What's truly important to you? You don't have to show anybody this. I just want you to list out, here's what I value. And you're like, I, I have no idea what my priorities are. Like, what? What are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to, if you don't get it, you're going to really be upset? What do you really prioritize? Maybe it's your career. It's a relationship. Maybe it's sleep. Like, what do you prioritize? What are you willing to give up so you can experience something? And I just want to say, like, as you write these out, don't be embarrassed about what you're writing. Um, Andy Crouch, he gives us helpful, uh, like, matrix for understanding culture. I think it applies well here. He says about culture, any culture on planet Earth, every culture has three things about it. There are things about a culture that should be affirmed. Every culture has something happening in it. We're like, that's a good thing. That's fantastic. Every culture also has something in it that needs to be redeemed. So it's like, hey, good direction. Let's just adjust these things over here. And then every culture has something about it that needs to be rejected. Same with your priorities, I think. There are everything about your priorities. There are some of my priorities that you have that should be affirmed. That's like, yeah, that's great. That's the image of God. See how that works out in the kingdom of God. There's going to be priorities you have that's like, hey, that's really good, but hey, here's a blind spot. Here's what you're missing. It needs to be redeemed. And there's priorities you have that need to be rejected. So list out your priorities. Second, I want you to write down an area of the Sermon on the Mount that you know that you need change in. Like, well, what's the Sermon on the Mount about? I have no idea. All right, here we go. Anxiety, anger, lust, unforgiveness, like, uh, loving finances, being religiously self-righteous. All right, what are, what's an area of your life that you're like, oh, that's, uh, I, I don't look there. And just write it down. Just say, God, I'm angry. Yesterday I threw the weed whacker across the yard. I'm angry. Write that down. And lastly, write this down. You are not a bother. You are not a bother. We don't naturally believe that. 
We really don't. We think like, okay, like, you know, God, you're busy running things. If you have time, come, you know, I'll I'll be waiting. That's not the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. And you need to preach that to yourself regularly. I am not a bother to this king. If you don't want to go on this journey, it's because you're rejecting him, not because he's rejecting you. Joshua Ryan Butler, who I think is a really helpful pastor in Portland, Oregon, he uh, has this phrase I think is really helpful. I shared it with the Sunday school last week. Uh, He invites us to think of a different way that we talk about um, God. We use this language of, I found God. And that kind of implies that God was lost and you had to go on a journey to find him. The Sermon on the Mount says, God comes after you. This is an act of you being pursued by this God. You are not a bother. Alexander Fleming, that messy scientist who discovered penicillin, wasn't ready for his discovery, and the world wasn't ready, and so 10 years went by before people were helped by antibiotics. Don't let time go by. This is an invitation to prepare yourselves for a journey that's going to challenge you, that's going to transform you. And the the way we start by looking at it is by looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love for us. Father, that your son asks a lot from us. He asks us to rearrange our lives around him, but that's what true living is, and that's where we find ourselves in losing ourselves. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to trust your son. Make us willing to be willing to change. Father, I pray that we as a body would be completely transformed on this journey we're headed off together. And God, I pray that we would be aware of your presence with us all along the way. God, we are asking great things of you, knowing your heart for us. We ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.